If you will, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. In a part one message this morning, under the title of Walking in the Truth, our need for both thinking and action in the Christian life, I want to draw your attention to Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In the last couple of messages from Philippians chapter 4, I have mentioned that within verses 4 through 9, we have seven imperatival commands, seven imperatives which Paul gives these believers in Philippi and, of course, for us as well. It may be that all of these commands are actually a practical outworking of chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, and here's the imperative here, out of which maybe all of these other seven commands which follow is the practical outworking, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in the Lord. Maybe there's a question about how to fulfill such a command of standing firm in the Lord. How do you do that? What does it mean to stand firm in the Lord? How does one stand firm in the Lord? It's a, it's a wonderful command. It's, it's an imperative. In other words, you have no option. But how do you stand firm in the Lord? What are the component parts? How do you flesh that out? Well, it's very possible that when Paul says there in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord, he's going to go on, especially in verses 4 through 9, after uh, he instructs Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, he gives these seven commands in verses 4 to 9 to flesh out what it means to stand firm in the Lord. And we've gone through several of them. In fact, five of these seven rejoice in the Lord always, first part of verse 4. That's how you stand firm in the Lord, by rejoicing in the Lord always. Secondly, latter part of verse 4, I command you again, rejoice, which I take to mean, and when you're tempted not to rejoice, rejoice again and again and again. That's how you stand firm in the Lord, by rejoicing again and again and again, as always, in the Lord. And then verse 5, show your forbearing spirit to everyone. You see it in verse 5? Let your reasonableness or your forbearance be known to everyone. That's how you stand firm in the Lord, 
you are forbearing with everyone in the Lord. And of course, this has been written to a church, and it's being read to a church, and it is therefore needing to be heeded by a church. And so we're to rejoice in the Lord always. That's how you can stand firm in the Lord. We're to rejoice again and again and again. That's how you stand firm in the Lord. We're to be forbearing in our spirit to all of those in the fellowship. That's how we stand firm together in the Lord. And then, of course, last time, as we saw very clearly in the first part of verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. No matter what. No matter what it is. No matter what life brings you, do not be anxious about anything. That's how you stand firm in the Lord. And not only do you put off this anxiousness, this, we- this uh, fear, this worry, but you also pray about everything. That's the fifth command here in these verses, latter part of verse 6. Pray about everything. Don't be anxious or worried about anything, but put on this command, pray about everything. In fact, my wife and I were having some alone time together last night on the couch, and we again going through this grand trial, weeping together, and we said to each other through our tears, do not be anxious about anything, pray about everything. I said, that sounds just like a sermon I recently heard. (laughs) Pray about everything. That's how you stand firm in the Lord. And Paul's not done. He gives two more to round out this section, one in verse 8 and one in verse 9. Here's the command in verse 8. Think about these things. It appears last in the Greek text and it appears last here in the English text. So everything that comes before it is what you and I would see with the equal sign at the end. So everything that comes before it equals something that comes after it, and here's that command, think about these things. By the way, beloved, it's not think about these things in a cursory manner. The word think there, logizomai, it's, it's the idea of thinking in a concerted way, seriously pondering these things. Think deeply about them. Don't just have some kind of a passing glance in your thought life about these things. Think about them deep, deeply, concertedly consistently, meditatively, perseveringly. That's what he means. All of those things are bound up here in Legizomai. It's it's the idea of thinking about these things so very deeply because in thinking about them as you are doing with a great deal of gusto, with a great deal of robustness, with a great deal of concerted thought, so that you are standing firm in the Lord. You can't stand firm in the Lord if you're thinking about Christian life matters in a cursory way, in a simple way, in a way that doesn't bring great thought and reflection and meditation 
and purpose and consistency to the forefront. And do you notice the last command of these seven in verse 9? It's not just about thinking of these things meditatively, deeply, concertedly, consistently, perseveringly. It's also practicing these things. Do you see it? Verse 9, what you have learned from Paul and his associates and received from them and heard from them and seen in them, particularly Paul himself. Here's the verbal command. Here's the imperative. Practice these things. Practice them. So it's not just your thinking, as important as that is. I mean, I've just belabored it right at the beginning of the message, and will do so throughout this message, about concerted thinking, about deep thinking, uh, about pondering these things, these certainties, these verities, uh, these Christian virtues that Paul is going to tell you to think much about. But it's not just about our thinking. It's also about practicing them. It's, it's practicing them a walk by walk by walk by step by step by step of the virtue of thinking about these things for the entirety of your Christian life. This is what he's saying. I got so deeply involved in verses 8 and 9 this week for not only what we're going through as a family, but for what our Christian family is always being tempted to do, and that is to think about things in a very short way, in a very substandard way, in a very quick way, so that when you read a verse a day, you hope the devil goes away. So I wanted to read this verse, verse 8, in such a deeply profound sense that I was trying to get to the equals sign regarding all these Christian virtues. Think about these things. Think about them, Lance. Think about them. Ponder them. Study them. Make them a part of everyday thinking in your Christian life. And not just that, but to practice them. Thinking and practice. And so... If you want to stand firm in the Lord, you do all these things. Rejoice, rejoice again, have a forbearing spirit, be anxious about nothing, pray about everything, and think and practice. And think and practice. Do you see the critical link between thinking and doing? It's here. It's here. And I couldn't get past thinking for this morning. And I suspect I can't get past doing next Lord's Day. And for this morning, verse 8, it will occupy the whole of us. And next Lord's Day, Lord willing, it will occupy us in the practice department, the doing department, thinking and doing. You know that's the essence of the Christian life? It's both thinking, you got to think, but it's also doing. you got to live it out. As I like to say, truth with legs on it. You're not complete unless you've done a sufficient amount of thinking and practicing. In fact, I thought about this so much that I wrote this down. Listen to this. There is no such thing, this is just coming from me, I didn't 
read this from anybody. I'm not quoting anybody. This is just my attempt to do a lot of thinking this week about these Christian virtues. There is no such thing as effective godly thinking in the Christian life without the aggressive, habitual practice of that thinking. There is no such thing as effective, godly thinking in the Christian life without the aggressive, habitual practice of that thinking. Likewise, there is no such thing as the successful execution of such practice in Christian living without the diligent pursuit of sustained, sanctified thinking. In other words, you can see it from both angles, right? It's both and, not either or. Now you say, that's a... That's a hefty paragraph. Give it to me more simply. Here it is. With no sustained biblical thinking, there will be no practical long-term effect of that thinking. And likewise, with no sustained effort in the practice of biblical thinking, there is no real understanding of that truth. Now, I get it. I know that there are people who say, yeah, I get the Bible. I get that verse. I get what it says. But if you're not practicing that, there is no sustained understanding of such thinking. And what will happen is as soon as you are tempted to think something else, you'll fall to that temptation because you haven't thought deeply about it and because you haven't practiced it in a long direction of obedience, you've not really fully grasped that truth. I'll put it to you as simply as I can. No real truth thinking, no actual truth practice. No real truth practice, no actual truth grasping. Now, I know we've got a culture that thinks that if you read something or you think about something or you see it on a screen, you got it. You got it. But if you don't add the practice of those thoughts in a sustained, habitual, sanctified way, in other words, you're continuing to think about it. You don't just say to yourself, got it, I've got it, let's go on, let's move on, let's get to the next, next thing, this is boring, I need to be challenged more, give me something else to think about. No, when I meditate on truth, when I see what Paul is demanding that I do, these are imperative commands, think about these things, think about them deeply, think about them in a sustained way, and to practice them, I do so in the practice of such a truth because I've really begun to discern the truth and understand it for what it is so that when the crisis comes, when the temptation is upon me, when the test is there right before my eyes, I'm able to say, no, I'm not going to go down that path because in my sustained thinking, I'm able to put the practice of saying no into its proper perspective. I'm going to say no to that temptation. I'm going to say, be gone, Satan. I don't have to do what you say. I'm not going to follow your will and command. Oh, yes, that temptation, it looks bold and beautiful. It looks very lovely. It's, um, it's vices covered over with virtue's beauty, but I shall not. Why? 
because I've thought deeply about this. I've thought deeply about God. I've thought deeply about Christ. I've thought deeply about the Holy Spirit. I've thought deeply about where those sins might lead me if I go down the primrose path, and I'm not going to do that. I've fallen before. I've learned my lesson. I shall not do those things. I shall practice what is right because I've been thinking more about what is right, and in my thinking more about what is right, I've begun to practice more of what is right because I've truly grasped the truth, and I'm truly living it out to the glory of God. Be gone, Satan. That's, that's what we're going to talk about today. Anybody interested in such a thing? So what does Paul do? I mean, if Paul, the practical preacher, were just saying to a congregation in the 21st century, like what he's saying to the Philippians in the first century, I'm suspecting we might say, and he might respond, if we say, well, give me the practicalities. Uh, the, the Christian life is just strewn full with all kinds of ideas and concepts and principles. How do we start? I mean, the Bible itself is just so vast. I mean, the the Bible gives us pages and pages and pages of stuff to think about. Where do I start? And maybe that's part of the problem with people. I mean, they look at this this big black Bible here, and they see these, these couple thousand pages and we just throw up our hands at times and go, where do I start? Well, what? I mean, I'm, I'm exhausted before I ever get started. I mean, there's all kinds of Bible books. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. There are 27 books in the New. There are all kinds of chapters and verses and paragraphs and sentences and phrases and words where do I hope to begin? Well, Paul, the practical preacher, says to them, the Philippians themselves, and to us, let me help you. And notice what he does in verse 8. He's going to give us six adjectives and two nouns. Eight words that are power-packed and extremely important. Now, remember, Paul's doing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So these are the words that the Holy Spirit wants us to think deeply about so that in our thinking we might practice these things. So whatever they are in this context and for Paul's purposes with the Philippians who are in a pagan society, they're in a godless society, and here's what he says, I want you to stand out among this godless society, and I want you to take these six adjectives and these two nouns, and I want you to think deeply about these things so that in your thinking of these things very deeply, very meditatively, you will be able to practice these things so as to be lights in a dark place. And not just looking outward to the world, but looking inward to the fellowship so that you are a person who is thinking and doing some very, very important things. Let's call them Christian virtues. And let's talk about these eight in rapid-fire succession. You ready? All right, here we go. Here's the first one. 
Here are these virtues, eight key, distinctly Christian virtues, six adjectives, two nouns, which define the essence of such considered, meditative, careful thinking, and serious pondering. And here's the first one, and you guessed it, whatever is true. Whatever is true. I mean, that's the first thing you got to nail down. What's true? As opposed to what's false. Now, we could say, well, maybe he's just saying the truth of the Bible. And it certainly includes that. Uh, But here, the the concept of truth is maybe the sense of what is comprehensively accurate. Maybe that's what he means by true here. Uh, What's comprehensively accurate? Uh, What's totally factual as opposed to falsehoods? Or uh, what is honest, true, honest, or maybe even this, genuine, genuine. So whatever's honest, whatever's genuine, whatever's comprehensively accurate and totally factual, think deeply about that. I'm, my, my, my head's about to explode already. I mean, because that's, that's a load. That's a lot of stuff. I, I need to think comprehensively about the things that are accurate and, 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 and factual and, and things that are honest and, and things that are genuine as over against those things that are disingenuous and, and things that are not honest, that are false, and, and things that are, that are actually partly true and partly false, uh, things that, that don't add up, things that aren't true. Boy, this is just the first, which gives us the absolute guilt-edge guarantee that the Christian life is not for those who aren't willing to think deeply. And we live in a culture that doesn't want to think deeply about anything except for the sins of which I want to think very deeply about. And we can think a lot about that. We can go to a theater with an 18-foot-high screen and for two and a half hours think deeply about absolutely nothing, about stuff that's not true, about stuff that's false. Oh, it's entertaining. In fact, even the word, let's go have some amusement. Do you know what the word muse means? To think. And a little A on the front of it negates the word. Let's have some not thinking meant. And so you, you go to a place like that, and that's just one example. It doesn't have to be in a theater. It could be on your tablet. It could be on your smartphone. It could be in a conversation with somebody. And, and the truth of it is set to the side. In a sense, the truth of it is irrelevant. It's entertainment. It's amusement. Why, why are you so down on such a thing? Look, I've got a limited amount of time, limited amount of space, Limited amount of cognitive ability, limited amount of effort, and I better be spending it on the things that matter. Whatever's true. Whatever's true. These things, whatever they are, and and they're accurate and factual and honest and genuine, they bring clarity against the things that Satan and the world work to distort and misrepresent. The Bible says... John's gospel that Satan is the father of lies. 
and he seeks to pervasively spread falsehoods which masquerade as that which is not true about God. You want to you see this? Look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll just give you a few little cross-referencing passages that talk about this idea of thinking and how incredibly important this idea of our thinking is, especially about that which is true. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a watershed passage. Look at verse 3. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 10, 3, for though we walk in the flesh, that just means for we walk in a human way. We're human beings. Uh, We can walk no other way. We're just walking as human beings. But even though we walk as human beings, we are not waging war according to human weaponry, according to the flesh. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare, the Christian war, the, the warfare that Christians are engaged in for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh or not human weaponry, but have divine power. Divine power to do what? To destroy strongholds. What, what house are we talking about? What edifice? What, um, what building? What physicality are we talking about? No physicality at all. We're not talking about physical buildings. We're not talking about literal governments. We're, we're talking about the spiritual life. What do, we, what do we do? What are these strongholds? What's he referring to? Verse 5, we Christians destroy, what's the next word? Arguments. Arguments. This is the truth war. This is a war about ideas. This is an argument regarding our thinking. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. Uh, there's, another, there's another think word raised against the knowledge of God. I say it like this. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against what is true about God. A lot of things that are raised in our world that are not true about our God. I want to defend our God. I want to defend what's right about him. I want to defend his character. I want to defend what he thinks as over against what the world thinks and who is raising opinions and lofty things as though they're strongholds, as though they're a fortress. It's a fortress of wicked thinking that are being raised as an edifice against what is true about God. How do we destroy such things? By taking every thought captive, verse 5, to obey Christ or to the obedience of Christ. And we're being ready, verse 6, to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This is a forever quest. It's a forever quest. You and I live as Christians to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against what is true about God. So the next time you see a television screen that is telling you something that isn't true about God, you either say it in your heart or you say it out loud, or both. That isn't true. That's a misrepresentation of who God is. And your thinking will become the habitual thinking of your practice when you continue to fight the truth war of your thinking regarding those things that are honest 
and accurate and factual about who our God is. Did I not read to you Colossians chapter 3? Why don't you go back there and we'll look at actually that which precedes Colossians chapter 3 because it is an amazing thing that we're called upon to do. In Colossians chapter 2, for instance, look at verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's, that's a thinking thing, right? You receive Him. You, you hear about salvation. Uh, you repent and believe. Uh, that's a thinking thing. You've received Christ Jesus the Lord. So what? So walk in Him. That's the practice of it. You say, okay, well, I'm saved. I'm saved. I, I, I'm on my way to heaven uh, I love the Lord, and, and uh, I did think about repentance, and I did believe. I placed my faith in Christ, and I'm on my way to glory. There isn't anything else to do, is there? Yeah, there's this little thing called the Christian life. There's this little thing called sanctification. And boy, there are times when you and I are tempted to say, why didn't we get saved, delivered from our sins, and then get catapulted, beam me up, Scotty, right into heaven? Man, would that have been so much easier. But there's this big thing after this really big thing of salvation, and that longer thing is our sanctification, and this battle is going to be to the very end until we are in glory. And in verse 8, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. There's, a, there's some word stuff again, some thinking stuff again, and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's, that's a truth war again. There's a bunch of thinking going on. And we as Christians ought to be doing the best thinking of anybody. You know why? Because we not only have the opportunity to do the thinking ourselves, but we also have the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Don't ever cut short what you and I possess in three things. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. we got a lot of thinking to do. We've got a lot of responsibility. Why? Is it just thinking for thinking's sake? Is it just for education? Is it just for filling the head? No. It's so that you and I won't be taken captive. And notice Paul uses that same idea, captive, that he uses in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, so that we can take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Whatever's true. This is a thinking man's game. This is a thinking lady's enterprise here. No one has a vibrant, dynamic Christian life who doesn't think about such a dynamic Christian life and what it entails and how to avoid sin and to pursue righteousness. Whatever is true. There is every virtue, my friends, in knowing and thinking through that which is biblically accurate, true, factual, honest, and genuine, which conforms to what God reveals, whatever is true. And we could think about that for a hundred more years, but we move on, whatever is honorable, whatever is honorable. The second Christian virtue here, and these are virtues 
that Paul says will help you stand firm in the faith. He commands the Philippians to think deeply about what it means to be honorable. What is honorable living for the Christian? The NIV, the word is used noble. Noble. Honorable. Noble. In fact, the very word honorable in the ESV, the English Standard Version of our Bibles, which is what we use to go through the Scripture, is using the same Greek word but translated with a different English word in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at with me, 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's the same word, the same word in our text, but it is translated with a different English word, and so you might be not seeing the parallel here. And here it is, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul is saying that I urge, verse 1, supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and, here's our word, dignified in every way. So whatever's honorable, whatever's noble, or whatever's dignified. Dignity. So how am I to shine as lights in the world, to the outside world? How am I to treat my fellow believers in the church? I'm to be dignified, honorable. And you know that one chapter later in chapter 3, verse 8, this is one of the qualifications for what it means to be a deacon. 1 Timothy 3, 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, honorable. They have a great reputation And the wife of a deacon, look at verse 11, let deacons each be the husband of one wife managing their children. That's what verse 12 says. Well, okay, if that's what a deacon is supposed to be, what about his wife? Well, she's included in verse 11. Their wives, deacons' wives, likewise must be dignified. Dignified. There is a a dignity to living for Jesus Christ. And, And whatever is dignified, live that way. And, it, and it's not just for a deacon, and it's not just in 1 Timothy 2 for, for men, it's also for everybody. In Titus, Titus chapter 2, it speaks of this dignity again. This isn't just a, a one or two verse apparatus. This is for all of us. In Titus chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified. Dignified. All, all men and certainly older men. And what about older women? Yes, older women too. Verse 7 says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity. And then right in the middle of that, verse 3, Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. How is the word of God reviled? When older women aren't teaching younger women what it means to be a godly person and to be dignified. This is, this is what Paul means here. To be that kind of person, you've got to be thinking deeply about the concept of what it means to be honorable and respectable and noble. Boy, this, this requires some real thinking. Number three, whatever's just. Whatever's just. 
Here's this third Christian virtue. Let's call it, because it's not like just in justification, it's just in the sense of being right. Rightness. Justness. Whatever is just, whatever's right. How many times have you heard in your parenting from your parents, or maybe you're a set of parents and you're saying to your children, you've got to do what is right. That's this word. Got to do what's right. I've told my kids for years and years and years, it's never right to be wrong in order to be right. Don't cut corners. Don't um, have the ends being justified by the means. You can't. You can't cut the corners. You can't lie and steal and cheat and ever hope to be right and just as a Christian. You've got to think deeply about that. And that's not easy. It's not easy. There are a lot of uh, corner cutting going on. You say, well, in what areas? How about taxes? Am I meddling? How about taxes? How about saying something that you know in your heart's not true? Saying something that's half true. And you know what a half-truth is. It's a falsehood because it's not completely true. What about faithfulness? Faithfulness to a spouse. What about faithfulness in church attendance? What about being right and just and fair in your business dealings? What about, and the list could go on and on and on. You know what Paul is doing? He's attempting to reorient, recalibrate all of the thinking of these pagan people who have come out now of their paganism into Christianity, and Paul says something like this, if he were to say it in 21st century parlance, I'm telling you, men and women, it's a whole new ballgame. Whatever's true, that's the way you live as a Christian. You don't compromise like you did before, and you listen to that which is true and false, and you try to put them all together, and you try to live right, rightly, justly, fairly. And whatever's dignified, you got to be dignified because what commendation is the gospel if someone is living like the devil? That's true. Then what's the use of somebody seeing Christianity as an option? You don't see Christianity as an option. Why? Because you're no different than we are in the world. And you know who our example of, of this kind of dignity and rightness and justness. It's our Lord Jesus. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is, this is our Lord Jesus. If you, if you want to look at an example to follow, here's our Lord Jesus. And it's not just that He's our example to follow. It's that plus, of course, when we don't follow that example, His salvation of sinners like us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, here's what it says to us in verse 21, for to this you have been called believing people because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. What kind of steps? Verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him, to God the Father, who judges how? Justly. That's our word. 
fairly. And, and if you're like me, you say, well, I've already failed. I've already utterly compromised. How can I be following in the steps of a person who committed no sin, had no deceit in his mouth, did not revile when he was reviled, and did not threaten when he suffered? I'm already disqualified. That's why verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, justness, fairness, equity. By his wounds you have been healed. And the first place you go when you know you've blown it is the one who never blew it. And you say, please forgive me again. Thank you for your forgiveness again. I want to be this just person. I want to be this right person. I want to be this fair person. And I want to have dignity in my life. I want to be dignified in my behavior. And I I want to be the kind of person who says things that are true, that are accurate and right. And if that's not enough, look at number four. Whatever is pure. Whatever is pure. You say, Paul's piling on. This ain't fair. I mean, whatever's true... And, and, and whatever is dignified and, and, and whatever is this that I'm hearing about from the preacher, this is uncle, I say, give up. I can't do it. Really? True and honorable, dignified, just and fair, and now pure? What's pure? Well, it's the opposite of impure. What is it? Here's the word I like, sincerity. Sincerity, purity, holiness. You're undefiled. Paul's even used that word, by the way, Philippians 1.17. He's used this very word for purity here. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Those who want to sort of uh, show up Paul if they thought they could not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Not sincerely. That's the opposite of our word pure. It's the same word with the negation. Impure. Not sincere. They don't have sincerity in their heart. They're not innocent. That's why I love what Paul says about repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a great place to go to see what the earmarks are of what repentance looks like, and one of those is you have so repented, you've proved yourselves to be innocent. That's our word, innocent in the matter. There's a kind of sincerity, a purity, and innocence when you start living for the Lord Jesus and you start saying, this is right and this is wrong, and I won't be dignified if I do that, and I won't be honorable if I do this, and, and if I'm to do anything, it's got to be just and right and fair, and it's got to be pure. And did you know in 2 Corinthians eleven two 2, that that very word pure is translated in some of our Bibles as the chaste virgin of the bride of Christ? Purity, chasteness. This is what we're talking about. And, and 1 John 3, verse 3 says that we are to live a life of purity as He, Jesus, is pure. He's undefiled. In John 17, Jesus says, the very reason that I have set 
your people, the gift of people that you gave me on a course of sanctification is so that they might be sanctified or purified in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. And then the very next verse and the verse after that show Jesus saying this, and I sanctify or consecrate myself for their purity. Boy, if, if he's doing that for us, should we be no less pursuing purity? Well, whatever's pure. Here's the next one. Whatever's lovely. Whatever's lovely. Oh, this is, this is an amazing word. It's only used here in the entire New Testament, this word lovely. It comes from phileo, that word for love, and it's got a little addition on the front of the word, and that addition makes this the most unique place, so unique that Paul doesn't use this word anywhere else in his writings. And, and it's so interesting because this word lovely is not in a sense when you think about it something that is inside of you like an adjective like pure or, or dignified. It's what you're looking at, that which is lovely to you. Now, it could be Paul saying, I want you to be lovely, but that which we find lovely will actually ultimately produce a loveliness in us. What does it mean, lovely here? What what is he talking about? Maybe it's what you see as the things around you. I I made a little list here. Maybe it's something like this. Uh, You want to do the things which are in and of themselves pleasing and delightful to the Lord. This lovely could mean pleasing or delightful. Uh, Maybe you see the grace of God at work in others, and you praise God about such grace in them, and you encourage them in what you're seeing in them. Hey, I see loveliness in you, and that's lovely to me, and it draws me to you. Uh, Maybe you're delighting in the sweet unity of our local church, and you send praises to God and encouragement to those who are fighting for such unity. Or or maybe you're, you're hearing beautiful singing, beautiful music which God has created for His glory, and because it is pleasing and delightful in His sight, you're thanking and worshiping God for His creative gifts and beauty. That's what's lovely. Maybe you're seeing God's inherent majesty in His creation, and it stuns you so that you're seeing His magnificence in in it all. And these are just a, a few of the things that you and I might find lovely, fair, beautiful, pleasing. And so Paul says, hey, whatever's lovely, whatever's delightful, whatever's pleasing to the eye, to the ear, to the palate, think on these things. And you know how much that's different than the banal and the ugly and the false and the sinful and the debased? It's opposite of all of that. You know, there are times where you and I ought to be, when something comes on the tube or something I see with my eyes, say, that's, that's not lovely. That, that's, that's not redemptive. How many, how many times shall I see such things and my heart turns to an unlovely thing, an unlovely act? Paul says, I want you to think 
deeply about these things. That's why 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the, the world nor the things in the world. For the love of the world, this, this pride of life, this, this love of the appetite, this, this boasting in the, the love of things that are a part of this sensate, sensual culture that's going to hell quickly I want to say no to those things. I want to find everything that's redemptive and lovely and pure and beautiful. And then he says, whatever is commendable, commendable. Like the word lovely, it's not appearing anywhere else in the New Testament. We could translate it maybe like this, admirable. Maybe your translation says, of good repute, of good repute. I just want to have my mind thinking about things that bespeak a good reputation. I want to have good repute. So interesting, this word on the front part of the etymology, the way the word is put together, it's well or fair, and then the last part of the word when you combine it is spoken of or sounded. You want to think of things deeply that are well spoken of. Fair sounding. Those things that have an admirable quality about them which people find them well-pleasing, well-spoken of, having such a good reputation in the community surrounding you. If you're thinking at all about these things, you're saying, like I am, I need to think about these things a whole lot more. And then he ends with these two nouns. If there is any excellence, if there's any excellence, moves from adjectives to nouns, uh, not just a quality that adjectivally relates to you, you're a fair person, a just person, an honorable person, a commendable person. But if you find any excellence in any of the six things I've just told you, Paul says, think about these things. Any excellence here? That's why Peter says, talking about the excellencies of God, that when we think about the excellencies of Him, we just want to spread those excellencies around. I want to be an excellent promoter of all things excellence. That's what I want to do. I don't have my own agenda. I just, I just want God and His excellencies to be so promoted that those are the things that I end up thinking about all the time. All the time. Occupy my mind with all the things that are excellent. In fact, the very same word excellence is mentioned in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, and in verse 5, and it's translated in our Bibles, the ESV is virtue. In your virtue, be excellent. And then the last, if there is anything worthy of praise, if there's anything praiseworthy, there's a lot of things in this world that don't matter a hoot and are fading with the passing of every day. They don't matter. They're going to burn. And you and I ought to be thinking deeply about things that are praiseworthy, both coming out of our character, anything praiseworthy, and the Bible talks about the praise of men and not just in a negative way. It talks about 
praiseworthy things that Christians do that are commendable. All these Christian virtues that we're talking about are praiseworthy items. If you think long and hard enough about them and then begin to practice them, you will be praised by not only God, our Heavenly Father, but by those around you because they're seeing in your life such virtue that they're being challenged to think through the same things that you're trying to think through. They're built up, you're built up, God is honored, praised, praised. Everything that's praiseworthy could be your civic duty. Now, I know none of us absolutely love, with every fiber of our being, going and serving for jury duty. And you and I, we try to get out of it. We try to say, I sure hope they don't call us past 3 o'clock. I hope somebody else goes instead of me. But maybe you and I are thinking deeply enough about something even like my civic duty, my societal reputation, that you might be saying, Lord, give me the opportunity in a jury panel to be salt and light in a dark place. I know that's counterintuitive. Hey, Lord, get me out of this. I got Christian ministry to do. Well, maybe he's going to call us to do the things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. You say, boy, you've given me so much to think about, my head is about to explode. You've given me so much to think about, I don't know if I'm going to be ready to come back next Lord's Day morning and talk about the practice of such things. Well, you come back because if you think about these things as you should and you come back and then think about how to practice them, your thinking will be so much better. Because in the practice of such things, the thinking becomes easier. Can I get a show of hands of those who'd like to come back next Sunday morning? Let's pray together. Father, we want to be those who are thinking deeply about such things because we do want to be praiseworthy. And as we are praiseworthy, then we're representing you who is the most, the perfect praiseworthy being in the universe. And for one, we would be thrilled to represent And not just to represent in our thinking, but in our practice. Lord, prepare our hearts now for when we come back, not only through this week's challenges, but next Lord's Day as we put together the twin overarching virtues of the Christian life, our thinking and our practice. For your glory and praise, we ask it. Amen.